It's Dr. Stu's podcast. Uh, this is podcast number 126. 126, that's a very random number. Uh, <laughs> I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm here with my protege, uh, Bliss Young. We're back for podcast number 126. Uh, that's a very strange title for a podcast, too. It's rather boring, isn't it? 126? Yeah. 126? 126. Yeah. It's a, sort of a, a, a number that never gets any... <laughs> excitement about it. It's never. No one ever gets really excited about the number 126. Maybe I should do some numerology we'll for the f- numbers. We could. Yeah. We could. Anyway, you can reach us at, mm-hmm. uh, well, you can find us at drstewspodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on iTunes. Give us five stars. You can email me at askdrstew. The music stopped. We just, we were, we were randomly going way too, <laughs> I, I went too slowly. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I wanted to make sure they could hear the <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks, John. Uh, email me at askdrstu at gmail.com. Email bliss at birthingbliss, B L Y S S dot com. Oh, and all the other things that we can do, you can do with social media. Just do it. All right. Enough of that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to know the details, go to listen to other podcasts where I'm a little more explicit on the details. All right. So, how are you today? I'm good. We had fun last week doing our little drive. Didn't we? Down to San Diego? Yes, we did. We took a road trip. We did take a road trip. Why did did we take a road trip? (laughs) I'll tell you exactly why we took a road trip. Do you know why I took the, you know why I drove down to both their houses? No, because they're twin moms that you wanted to go visit? Partly. Yeah. Okay. So I have uh, two twin moms, one due in April, one due in June that are in San Diego. Yeah, we usually visit at 36 weeks or 37. Yeah, we went we like went early because visit. they were both, and we also had a postpartum mom we've stopped to visit too, but in uh, in Orange County. But we went down there because they both came up the visit before. One of them has four kids. Yep. One of them has three kids. Yep, okay. very cute kids. So the idea of these people having to drive up from San Diego with four kids in the car <laughs> or three kids in the car or whatever... And make it you make a day of it for them. Mm-hmm. What is is inconvenient to do it every time they have to come in. So I thought that we would just be nice. And we were nice. Go down, and you and I could have a day of fast food and and some <laughs> interesting sights like the Bamboo Inn, which is our favorite. <laughs> Maybe we'll use that. Actually, I'll probably put that on um, for the on Doctor Stu's podcast as the picture for this podcast, just because it's such a iconic picture yeah and you can look at some pictures of Stu and I on instagram as well my birthing bliss on instagram page i know you don't have an instagram, I don't instagram. so i can't tag you but <laughs> i know i'm so old but i'm gonna keep putting pictures of us <laughs> yeah i don't there. do instagram or snapchat or any of those other things either and we're talking about Cheating. next time we do a podcast doing a facebook live so we're gonna try and see how you guys like that a little more interaction we have to buy a new shirt <laughs> you can dress however you like. You can? Yeah, it's your podcast. Wow. Wow. Maybe not naked. So, no. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. Nobody. <laughs> Which is really sad. Uh, oh. Oh, we oh. got dark. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Moving on. So, no. So, anyway, so they were they were doing great in San Diego and uh, one of them was great cuz she's like uh, I could throw a rock into into Mexico. From her house. Can I tell them what you what you said? What did I say? <laughs> About it being a, the Wild West down there? Yeah, just the Wild West down there. Stu was like, I'm bringing my gun next time. Yep. I was like, Stu, he's like, I got a nice car. I got to defend you. I was like, well, that part's nice. And the truth is, the truth is, is what it was like five <laughs> miles down a, a like a windy road and, and then a, like a mile down a dirt road. And we did see a lot of Border Patrol people. We, <laughs> yes, saw, we, we saw helicopters and cars. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 
So I'm, yeah, when uh, we, I'm packing next time. When we looked at the, it's in the birth kit. It's a new thing. I'm going to put it on the <laughs> internet. Now it's my new thing on my birth kit. You know, You're packing? Yeah, my Glock. Um, <laughs> we, we, we mapped out what the closest hospital was, and it told us Mexico, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're yeah. like, uh, that might be weird. Yeah, yeah, I don't think we can go across the border to have a baby. No, we didn't. We looked for. We can't get back then, or they can't get back. Yeah, we were talking about it might be weird for the baby too, because it would have (laughs) Mexican status instead of. I don't know how that works. U.S. I don't either. Yeah, but we did. We just we put in the nearest hospital. We asked Mm -hmm. Siri for the nearest hospital, and first of all, she like gave me a dirty look, and then she (laughs) said, (laughs) "Yeah, it was in Mexico." Anyway, so and uh, yeah, but so just for convenience for them, it's just an easy thing to do, and um, I, I like driving. Mm-hmm. When there's no traffic, mm-hmm. I like driving when sixty miles takes sixty minutes. Yeah, I don't like it when six miles takes sixty minutes. Right, <laughs> which happens a lot in Los Angeles. So we went to see a movie instead of driving back in traffic. What did we see? We saw. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the name of it. Paris fifteen yeah, seventeen. Fifteen seventeen to Paris. Yeah, the last twenty minutes were really good. Yeah, I mean the story <laughs> is very compelling about these kids. Yes. I, anyways, fr- we'll do movie reviews on a separate podcast. No, we could do movie reviews now. <laughs> I liked uh, um, Black Panther. I thought it was pretty good. Did you see it? Uh, yes, I saw it yeah, on I was, Sunday. Uh, I was, I was, you know, I I really wanted to see it because I was really excited about there being a black superhero. Honestly, I thought I really I mean, a black superhero with his own film because there's already yes. that guy that flies around in the uh, in the um, Avengers movies. I can't, can't remember his name. I don't need. I don't see a see, lot that's of why, them. That's the thing. You see, he's like uh, he's, I forgot. He's got metal wings on him. I forgot his name now, though. Black Hornet? No. No, no that's Green Hornet. Oh. <laughs> yeah. See, no, I don't know. There's no Black Hornet. Anyway, um, I I really liked the fact that it was very um, very steeped in spirituality and ritual, and it was in nature, where a lot of the other ones are very urban. and So there were a lot of things that I really enjoyed about it in contrast to other superheroes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, like the, I like the fact that they cured a bullet wound to the spine in like uh, 15 minutes. Yeah, that was super cool. I want one of those. Super cool. (laughs) Put that in my birth kit too. So a lot of amazing, empowering messages um, and that made me really happy. So you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, one of your clients, I think, uh, you mentioned. uh, Yeah, I've just had a lot of really unique cases. I have a a client who um, has placenta accreta and previa. So I know. Walking her through that journey um, has been really interesting. We, last podcast, we were talking about women of color. And, you know, that's a real concern for her. She, you know, she says, I'm brown, and I'm really worried that I'm not going to get quality care. And so, you know, really, really walking that path with somebody that I'm close to has been, it's been emotional. But she, yeah, and, but you know she's going to get quality care because you know the people that are going to be... I mean, her, I yes, think. mostly. She but has a very unique problem, though. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, she's got to see I have a specialist. To tell you, I tell you, I've seen placenta previa many times. This is the first time I've, I think you said it's percreta, right? It's percreta. Yeah, it goes into her bladder. Or yeah, it's starting to encroach on her bladder. Yeah. So, you know, I'm learning so much about the risks of that in terms of, um, maternal hemorrhage and you know um and losing her uterus, her uterus yep. and not being able to which she to. will i mean i think She's, there's really little choice well you know the doctor told her something really interesting um that in in france they they do this whole other procedure he said i wouldn't normally tell anybody this but you're asking all of these questions and i want to give you all the information and it's basically they leave the, the placenta, placenta in. in yeah 
So, you know, I was like, well, why don't you go to France? And she's like, gosh, I wish I could figure that out. But of course, you know, that's yeah, crazy. I don't know. I don't know that it's going it to, it would, it would change the long-term prognosis for her about if she wanted another kid, because I don't think they would, even when they leave the placenta in, I don't think they're going to recommend. The statistics are very low for people who have actually had a successful pregnancy after that. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But right. it's also losing your uterus in general that I think women don't always want to do. You know? No, of course not. Yeah, even of if they're not. not planning. No, to have yeah, more children, no, no. Which it's, she it's, was. It, yeah, listen, I I know very well about that. Yeah, um, and then I had a um, a client who, and you're gonna have to remind me what it's called because we ta- we came and saw you just to get a second opinion, but um, at our 20 week ultrasound, which I don't always, you know, when I was having babies, that wasn't a big deal to do a structural u- ultrasound for home births, but now it's kind of a common thing that we're doing. And so, you know, these two clients in particular really wanted to get the 20-week ultrasound, and um, and I give informed consent about it, and she found a massive anomaly in the brain. It's actually not massive. It's subtle, but it's significant. It's called okay, Dandy, significant. Dandy Walker malformation. It's yeah, called. yeah. And I, you know, I don't screen for those. I mean, I do some of these structural ultrasounds. I was very impressed with the finding because in certain views across the, the posterior fossa of the brain, which is part of the u- ultrasound, it looks perfectly normal. Mm-hmm. And then you go lower, you can see where there's there's a problem with the what's called the vermis of the cerebellum and uh, and the fourth ventricle uh, protrudes into it. And yeah, so that it was it was a very tragic thing for them. And uh, sometimes those babies, they all have deficits. Sometimes they're not they're minor, and sometimes they're they're major. It's mm-hmm. really can't really really know. Right. So that's something you're walking her through. And then you have this lady with uh, with significant proteinuria. Which is another yeah. one. At, at, at an early gestational age, do how many weeks? No, not that early. She's 30. Oh, she's 30 weeks? Yeah, okay. she's 30 weeks. Um, so I just kind of felt like, man, another one of my clients might be, you know, not being able to stay in care. And I felt really sad for her. And so, you know, I've been picking your brain about some of the lab work and stuff that I should be running on her. And um, But I've also been picking midwifery. Um, mentors about um, supporting her liver and doing some herbal protocols for that um, uh, and upping her protein based on the brewer's diet. They do a lot with twins and um, preeclampsia and I think gestational diabetes is another one where this diet is quite effective, but it's 120 or more grams of protein. protein. So basically they say an hour, um, every waking hour to have protein. See, this is really interesting. This is why I love the idea of collaboration with midwives, and ultra, you know, and uh, naturopathic doctors, and uh, acupuncturists, and uh, just putting everybody together. You you can give such better holistic. I, I don't mean the holistic in the sort of way. I mean holistic in in all aspects of it, to give care to somebody that may end up getting the birth that she wants because. Mm-hmm people didn't panic right away. Oh my God, she's got three plus protein in her urine. I have to transfer your care. Um, I have people who have somebody who has screened for diabetes and, uh, or they're spilling sugar in their urine. They do a random blood sugar and it's 180 or whatever else. And they say, do I have to get rid of, do I have to transfer her care? I said, no, we have to figure out what's going on with her sugars first. And if we can control her sugars with diet, an exercise. An exercise. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, right. But mm-hmm. then there's really no reason that she still can't have the birth that she wants. Mm-hmm. Even though in the guidelines, not the guidelines, the rules for, for midwives in certain states and stuff like that, you know, gestational diabetes is a, way, is a reason to exclude them from your care. 
I would say all the more reason that, that to keep them in your care if you can, because you're going to give her better nutritional counseling, better, uh, better care than most, you know, obstetrical practices can do simply by because of the model by which they care for people. They just don't have the time right. to, to do that sort of thing. So, you know, because I, I, lo- I look at things and I don't label people high risk simply because those titles exist. I label people high risk when they truly are high risk. Someone over 35 to me is not high risk. Right. Okay. Somebody who... Or 40, by the or way. Or 40. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who has, you know, mild uh, either hypertension or gestational hypertension, but not preeclampsia, I don't consider that a person that can't have the birth that she wants as long as we can control it. Yeah, we worked on a client which like sort that of, last year. Which sort of leads me into my, my topic today, mm-hmm. which is the, you know, lately I've been having a, a, a rash of, of midwives who've been contacting me with their clients at 41 weeks and four days, 41 weeks and five days. And you why know. is that, Stu? Uh, well, everybody who's listened to this podcast knows <laughs> because California has a law that says... Stupid law. When, we don't... When you turn... Words. Yeah, that's, see, that's my turn. That's, <laughs> I should say that. Anyway, it, when they turn 42 weeks, they can no longer be cared for. Now, I wanted to go through that today because I wanted to try to figure out what is it about 42 weeks that makes everybody so nervous and break it down. Oh. In California. Because in Oregon, the it's standard four, of care is 43 three weeks. weeks. Yeah. Which makes much more sense based on some of the research that I've done over the past week, which I'm going to try to, you know, relay to the listeners today by yeah. going through some data. Great. I also want to mention that I'm on a lot of, um, like, free birther and, like, very low intervention, even midwifery um, Facebook groups and women are talking about going to 44 weeks with no issues at all. So it's kind of nice to have, because we don't know how, how far women would go without issues because we intervene so much. So sometimes women who do this kind of thing. Well, as long as they're here. given informed consent about the risks, that's their, it should be their choice. It but be. it's not necessarily their choice because because informed consent counseling is, is, is not necessarily honest most of the time. Right. And they don't, and, and they don't do what I always talk about, which is give actual risks. They give relative risks and relative risks don't mean anything if you don't know what the denominator is. Right. Like, I'm going to say that, I'm going to say that till the day I die. If people will just learn to do a little bit more math and understand statistics, they'll, they'll understand there's a big difference between something that's <laughs> 10 times riskier, but still one in a million. Yeah. Right. We need to, we need t-shirts on that one. I'll have to come up with a meme. Yeah. I probably have already. <laughs> anyway, so again, this is podcast number 126. And so I'm going to honor number 126 as a very important number simply because it's arbitrary. <laughs> Just like 42 weeks is arbitrary. So, awesome. all right, here I go. I, I, I went through a whole bunch of uh, information and I'm going to try to relay this to, to the listeners. Um, uh, again, your comments are welcome. But I started with, of course, ACOG, the American College of OBGYN, because that's the organization that sort of sets the bar even if it's low, <laughs> even if it's a low bar. Um, and in, in 2013, they actually changed sort of the definition of term and post-term pregnancies because up until that time, if you were a day beyond 40 weeks, you were considered post-dates. They would call you post-dates. A day beyond what? 40? 40 weeks, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that terminology was, in, was, was uh, inaccurate, inconsistent, and then when you tried to look at studies of women who were post-dates, you can't compare somebody who's 40 weeks in one day with somebody who's 42 weeks in five days. So they began to put them into different groups. And I wanted, just for terminology said, they replaced the word term gestation with 
early term, which is 37 weeks and zero, to 38 and six. Okay. All right. Then full term is 39 and zero to 40 and six. All right. Late term is 41 and zero to 41 and six. And then considered post-term is 42 and beyond. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I like that because then somebody who's 41 weeks isn't labeled post-term. They're just late. They're late term. They're in the normal. I mean, late term doesn't sound good because it's, it, it, it has the kind of late term abortion. And, it, you know, when you term that, that term has been used so much that people think late term and then they think late term abortion it has nothing to do with that. It's just, it's just, they're in the, they're in the, in the normal range. It's like the analogy I always use is what do they call somebody who graduates last in medical school? I don't know. Doctor. Okay. <laughs> All right. Because it doesn't really matter whether you're first or last, you're doctor. So right. whether you're 37 weeks and zero days or 41 weeks and six days, you're still term. And I like the fact that they're doing that because that makes the most sense. Yeah. I don't love late though. Yeah. I, they should call it. If we're going to mince words. I, I'm After term? What do you want to call it? What, what, word, what word should we give it? What's the bliss word for? <laughs> I'll have to think about that. It yeah, won't be late because yeah, late, late does it does have a weird well. You are you feel like you're behind the you know you're already behind, whereas you just haven't. It's just not time for you. How about yet. full term is is thirty nine and zero to forty and six? How about fuller? Yeah, I like fuller. Fuller term, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you're, you're fuller. Okay, we're going to call it fuller term, which is actually very true. Right. All right. So yeah, because the you're getting fuller. You are fuller. <laughs> <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> All right. So uh, and then they they go on in this committee opinion, which is committee opinion number oh boy, what is it number five seventy nine uh, from November of twenty thirteen. They say the frequency of adverse neonatal outcomes is lowest among uncomplicated pregnancies delivered between thirty nine and zero and forty and six. All right. So that's just the basic basic uh, guideline from which we're going to work on now. All right. Early term, 37 to 38 and 6. Full term, 39 and 0 to 40 and 6. Fuller term, from <laughs> 41 and 0 to 41 and 6. And post term is beyond, 42 weeks and beyond. Okay. So then I went and looked at the ACOG practice bulletin, number 146, which was from 2014, <laughs> on management of late term, which we call fuller term, mm-hmm. and post term pregnancies. All right. And I wanted to look at that and see what is ACOG saying because there is confusion about this. And again, what Sacramento and California relied upon to come up with 42 weeks, I would argue is, is, is arbitrary because what's the difference between 41 and six weeks, 41 weeks and six days and 42 weeks? It's basically an hour, a right. couple of minutes. Right. And suddenly you're changing the category. Now I understand that you have bean, to cut counters, it off somewhere. bean counters like to count beans and they like to mm-hmm. have a cutoff. But to make that a hard and fast law is wrong. It's just simply wrong. Because there are forty two weekers who are perfectly whose whose babies are, are 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 not small and not too big, whose environment is just fine. There's no reason they can't go on further. We were just talking in the last podcast about the client that we shared. She went to 42 and 5. Right. Um, and, you know, we did NSTs and everything looked Yeah, we didn't even do them by the right schedule because she didn't want them. She no. chose to, she was given informed consent and chose to skip with them now and then. And yeah, she wasn't feeling great and she thought she was in early labor. And But, you know, the interesting thing about her, if I may interject about, about her experience, was with her first pregnancy, 
because she also went a little bit later. She cooks her babies a little bit longer. There were even in midwifery care because we now are intervening more because we want our clients to be able to have their delivery that they want. So, you know, stripping her membranes and kind of encouraging labor and doing all of these things. And she said she felt like her body was always a little bit behind what we were doing. So stripping her membranes, then it became breaking her water bag, and then it was pushing the cervix yeah, over. Yeah, you know, I, I've seen, I've seen my, my poor midwife colleagues who I work with um, struggling with this because they're doing things to their clients that they would never do. Never. If, there, if this law didn't exist. They yeah. would just give them information and let them choose what to do, and they would do the, the recommendations. And I'll tell you, the recommendations for post-AIDS testing are different than what a lot of us think. And I'll... And I'll okay. And, and this is ACOG saying this, and yet so many of my ACOG obstetrical colleagues are, are not following ACOG guidelines uh, for reasons that will... That'll we, be great to hear. But yeah. let me just tell you the last part of this before you jump into that. Okay. She, um, this time because you were part of her care and she didn't feel like she had to worry about the law because you were going to be involved, um, she decided to not do those things this time. Yeah. And she did not want to move labor along. She wanted to wait to go into labor spontaneously. The, and we really made a very conscious effort during her actual delivery to, to not do those things so that she could experience... Like, it's almost like a reclaiming of her body. Her body does work. Her body can do this. It gestates longer. But everything was done on her own accord without having to intervene. And yep. I think that that's the kind of subtleties that we talk about sometimes that, you know, are empowering to women that are t completely taken away from them, you know, that are important. Yeah. yeah. Sacramento is not listening. but <laughs> Sacramento, you need to listen to our podcast. Okay. Uh <laughs> So anyway, so the practice bulletin goes on to say the etiology of most pregnancies that are late term or post term. Well, we I guess I'm going to use the word late term because that's what's in the thing, but we're going to consider it to be fuller term. Yeah, right? we're going to coin the from phrase. 41 weeks on. Uh, most of the etiology is unknown. Why they go late? There are several risk factors for post term pregnancies that have been identified by observational studies, including nulliparity. So women having her first baby mm -hmm. is more likely. Don't tell that to Ashley because. She went longer. <laughs> uh, prior post-term pregnancy, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. Carrying a male fetus. That happened. Right? Yeah. Right? Well, with the second one. Yep. Yeah. And maternal obesity. Not the case. No. And that the, the uh, studies of twins, of all studies of twin who grow up and have babies, show that there's a genetic predisposition also to go post-term. So it may be something... The twin, the, actually. The twin girls grow up, they have babies, uh -huh. and both of them would tend to go post-term. And midwives also include the fact that sometimes women have longer cycles. Their moon cycles are longer. It's not on that normal 28-day kind of expected that they actually have a longer cycle, and that could contribute to just dating longer as well. Well, we're going to get to that because accurate mm -hmm. dating makes it makes a big difference and mm -hmm. uh, and there's some surprising things about having a first trimester ultrasound that that are very that are actually kind of important. So okay, good. you know, a lot of people don't want to do they don't want to do any of those things, so that's fine, but but I, I want them to make these decisions based on good information. Right. Um, there was a large Swedish study that looked at post-term pregnancies that they were associated with increased risk of neonatal convulsions. Post-term, so we're talking beyond 42 weeks. Mm -hmm. Meconium aspiration syndrome and five-minute APGAR scores less than... That's mine. Mm -hmm. Just leave it. Uh, five-minute <laughs> Our phones are sitting... We, you know, they're attached to our hip, so... <laughs> uh, five-minute APGAR score less than four. 
there's a significant increase in the rate of neonatal intensive care unit admissions. Now, when they say significant, I looked at that and they said the odds ratio is 2.05, which means a significant increase they considered to be twice, uh, uh, two times the the rate of increase. Um, So again, it's, what's the what's the actual admission rate we don't know so twice a small number is still a small number twice a larger number is a bigger number right but again so when you counsel people it'd be nice to know the denominators of these these risks which you you really have to delve into the into the um uh, references in the paper and that would you know and again when you go through these things you can do that and and for a, a talk that i might be giving at the portugal I think they want me to do something on 42 weeks on a panel discussion, and I, I may start spending a lot of time looking at where this data comes from because they do have references on everything they, they do here. So in Portugal, they treat it similarly. Don't know. But don't, they asked you to speak on a panel about it, so don't you assume? They want to, yeah, I, I don't okay. know how they treat it in Portugal, okay. but they want me, they're going to do a panel with mothers and, and okay. people. Um, there's, a, there's a twofold increased risk of macrosomia mm-hmm. in people that go beyond 42 weeks, which is not surprising. Because they're growing. I mean, but babies, what, but what's, what is the definition of macrosomia? Um, I don't know what they use for the definition here. I think it's probably beyond, I hope it's more than nine pounds, but it might be nine pounds. So it's just a weight. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a it, weight. It's purely a arbi- another arbitrary number. Post-maturity syndrome uh, complicates 10 to 20% of post-term pregnancies. Post-maturity syndrome is our f- babies are... They, Characterized by a fetus with decreased subcutaneous fat, lack of vermis, excuse me, lack of vernix and lanugo hair, meconium staining of the amniotic fluid, skin, membranes, and umbilical cord. Which none of those are in affect their health overall. Well, it's just actually sometimes that those babies are more likely to end up getting admitted to the NICU and have some have some problems. Right, they are. All right. But again, we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, oligohydramnios occurs more frequently, which, again, wouldn't be surprising. It's slowly but surely that the fluid levels diminish. We're going to get to that, too. We're going to talk about what's the definition, definition of oligohydramnios. Mm-hmm. Although the absolute risk of stillbirth and neonatal mortality in post-term pregnancies is low, um, there's an increased risk as each gestational week goes on, um, which would be make sense because... The longer you go in utero, the more likely you are to have an adverse event. Right. But again, if the the overall likelihood, even they admit that it's low. Okay, what is low? Well, my understanding about uh, you know uh, stillbirth is that the rate of stillbirth at thirty seven weeks, if you look at a lot of studies, is about three per ten thousand, and the rate at forty two weeks is about eleven per ten thousand. So eleven per ten thousand is still one in nine hundred and something, which seems small to some people and maybe bigger to some people. But again, that's information you should give them. It's a 3.6 relative risk. And if you say it's three times, 3.6 times more risky to go to 42 weeks than it is to be at 37 weeks, that sounds awful. But you're still talking about one in, about one in a thousand. So mm-hmm. it's still a very small number. Mm-hmm. Um, a d- analysis of data from Scottish birth registry showed a similar inc- uh, significant increase in the risk of stillbirth from 37 weeks. Yeah, so they're basically confirming that. Um, the risks of severe perineal laceration, infection, postpartum hemorrhage, and cesarean delivery were all increased in women with late-term and post-term pregnancies. And this is, again, comparing it to early-term and full-term. Um, and hospital statistics. Some studies that suggest that maternal anxiety is increased 
duh. <laughs> Late term. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, part of it, is, you know, it's 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 societal. That's where the right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like your your colleague, your client Ashley was. She did not have added anxiety. Well, her family, like but other her family people, did, right. gave her yes. a lot of stress. Yes, yeah. they did. Yeah, they did. Um, they say expectant management until the post-term period is appropriate and otherwise uncomplicated pregnancies. So contrary to what we talked about, I think in podcast 125, where everybody should be induced at 39 weeks mm-hmm. because the C-section rate is lower, which is <laughs> still really bothering me. Um, ACOG basically says expectant management until at least 42 weeks is appropriate in otherwise uncomplicated pregnancies. So they make the, the um, they say the following, accurate gestational age determination is really important. Because yes. obviously, if you're off by a week or two on their dates, that can make a huge difference. Somebody who's 42 and a half weeks could really be 40 and a half weeks. Can Something I ask you a question about sure. that? Sure. No, you can't interrupt me. It's, I'm on a roll. <laughs> so. <laughs> you believe she asked that question? <laughs> She's sitting here across from me. She asked me if she could ask a question. So, I, am I that intimidating? No, you might just, you know, have, have a certain thing you want to get to. I'll get to it. Um, so I have a client who knows her conception date very clearly and even had a, you know, somebody who was helping her with fertility checked and saw that she was actually ovulating that day Um, and now the OB that she's working with doesn't want to take those dates and wants to push her dates a week back because the baby is measuring bigger. How many weeks? How many weeks change? No, how many weeks is 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 the OB measuring the baby measuring bigger at is it like seven weeks or is no. it like 27 weeks no it wasn't that far but it was like it was definitely beyond that like 10 week window it was like 14 weeks or something like that and yeah at 14 weeks the error of a, a scan is plus or minus about five to seven days so you know you wouldn't change someone's due date by five to seven days if that, that were the case but i mean wouldn't you wouldn't you acknowledge that, that she only she, had sex one time and yeah. she knew when she ovulated right until, I would. I mean, that just seems like I'm like, why would we throw that out and just take this because number from our because computer? Doctors believe numbers more than they believe women. Well, she's going to advocate for her, her due date not to be. Maybe changed she should find she a different physician. Week. We've talked about. That. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that would be a good. Thanks so, for that. Yeah. Good. So, okay. So when ultrasonography is used to confirm menstrual dating, the instance of late-term and post-term pregnancies is reduced. Which is a which is a duh moment. I mean, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. When you have accurate dating, it's unlike it's less likely women are going to go to forty two weeks or beyond, because most pregnancies don't go to forty two weeks and beyond. Some people that are forty two weeks and beyond are really not forty two weeks and beyond. Yeah. So you want to have accurate dating. And that's only when they're not sure about their cycle. Is that what that says? That the, that the ultrasound would be the most. Well, it's used to confirm menstrual dating. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yes, it would be even in people who think they're pretty certain about their menstrual cycle, mm-hmm. okay. right? It's just it's it's a, it's a study that looked at ultrasound versus menstrual dating and and found that people with ultrasound don't go as you know don't often get to forty two weeks because their dates are slightly more accurate. Mm-hmm. Okay, now again with a woman with a twenty eight day cycle who's got a twenty eight day cycle every month, uh, you don't really need that. But some women have twenty eight to thirty five day cycles. Or were nursing or... Or know. had no cycles, right, yeah, right, yeah. of course. Then then ultrasound is very important when you when you have no idea. Yeah. Membrane sweeping, all right? Membrane sweeping is associated with a decreased risk of late-term and post-term pregnancies. 
the most recent Cochrane review demonstrated that membrane sweeping was associated with a significant reduction in the number of pregnancies that progressed beyond 41 weeks of gestation. Okay. Now, they do go on to say that later on, and I'll get to it, that, that they understand that um, it's uncomfortable and it causes bleeding and it may not be something that the woman wants. But they're saying if, if you do it routinely from... 37 weeks Whatever, 37, 38 weeks, which mm-hmm. we, we in the midwifery model generally don't do vaginal exams. But if you have a history of somebody who's got a history of going late and they're concerned about it this time or because of, if you wanted to start doing membrane sweeping, you could at least check them at 38 or 39 weeks and see if their cervix is unfavorable, leave it alone. But if their cervix is you know, one or two centimeters dilated, you can get your finger in there and want to do it and give them the informed consent. You could tell them that there is evidence to show that if I do this to you every week, there's a less likelihood that you're going to get to 42 weeks. Yeah. Okay. That's just fair information, even though it doesn't always fit with the model by which we want to care for. And making sure that they know that there's a risk that you could break their bag. Yep. Yep. That's in there too. Yeah. Okay. Um, Should antepartum fetal testing be performed in late term and post-term pregnancies? Here's a surprising thing. There are no randomized controlled trials that demonstrate that antepartum fetal surveillance decreases perineal morbidity or mortality in late term and post-term pregnancies. Hmm. Now, that means that no one's done the studies. Mm-hmm. Common sense would dictate that that looking at the baby's environment does make some sense, but there are no studies that actually prove that. That's interesting. Yeah, we would all thought that. So there's something called the modified biophysical profile, which is just NST and amniotic fluid assessment, not looking at tone, fetal breathing, or uh, fetal movement. And that's been equally as good as the full biophysical profile NST. Um but when I, when I do them for, for, the, for the women that I see, you know, I do the full thing because it doesn't take much time to do it. But if you don't see fetal breathing, but you have good fluid and a reactive NST, that there's no difference. Fetal breathing, it, not seeing fetal breathing and giving them a minus, a two, two points off on the score, it's not, not something to worry about according to the ACOG. And I agree with that. So when should you just do an NST and when should you do a BPP? Well, there, there, there's actually very little difference between NST and biophysical profile either, all right? In terms of... Uh, of terms of, of outcome. Outcome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, th- you know, what you're looking for, because there is an increased morbidity when, when the amniotic fluid index is low, that... I can feel that, though. Yeah, then, then you're fine with just doing NSTs. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. You you would be criticized if something went wrong. Of course. Okay. <laughs> I'm just wondering for those women who really want. S- <laughs> that was just a, that was such a matter of fact. Of course, <laughs> I just have to laugh. I can that. get criticized at everything. I better get going here because we're running out of time. See, okay. that's why I didn't. And ask I got questions. so much to go. All right. <laughs> a number of small studies suggest that twice weekly antepartum fetal surveillance may be superior to once weekly in postterm pregnancies, but the data are insufficient to make a firm recommendation. Evidence suggests that uh, ultrasound assessment of amniotic fluid volume to detect oligohydramnios is warranted, all right? Now, what they, what they think is uh, oligohydramnios is actually defined as a pocket of fluid of two centimeters or less. Some of us use the five centimeter total or greater than five centimeter total, but if you have, if you have no pockets that are greater than two centimeters, that in and of itself could be considered oligohydramnios. But if you have one pocket that's 2.1 centimeters or anything greater than that, then by definition, it's not oligohydramnios. But that's not the kind of reports that a lot of people listening are going to get from the uh, maternal fetal medicine group. They're going to say, you know, the fluid was less than five or whatever else, or, 
or it was what, what was it with the other previous podcast lowish mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it was lowish you have lowish fluid that's not scientific at all all right but if you're educated and informed you can tell them actually pocket over two is not considered Correct. So women could go in and advocate for that. Right. Singleton right. pregnancies at 41 weeks of gestation or greater who were assigned to receive induction of labor or expectant management with fetal surveillance two to three times a week. The authors found an increased rate of cesarean delivery in the expectantly managed group, which is what we had talked about earlier. Um, but this was not 39 weeks. This was post-term. So this is not the same as we talked about, I think, in the previous podcast, um, where where they thought that 39 weeks being induced was okay. Right. Yeah, this is saying that in uh, induction, when you get close to 42 weeks, does have lower morbidity than, than waiting. Okay. Um, Cochrane reviews, boy, this is going to get, uh, I'm going to get in the weeds. I'm going to skip that, okay. Um, is the role for vaginal birth after cesarean delivery in the management of post-term pregnancy? Uh, there is no increase in the risk of uterine rupture associated with the trial of labor attempted at or beyond the estimated date of delivery. Uh, the trial of labor after cesarean failure rate increased with advancing gestational age, um, which probably fits with the idea that babies are getting bigger. I, I mean, that's my only explanation for that. For which? The, the fact that the success of a VBAC is less the further, the later, the more weeks you are and the doctor is getting more nervous i'm yeah, sure right has a big okay a big so their, their their level a conclusions basically are that late-term and post-term pregnancies are associated with increased risk of perineal morbidity and mortality and two induction of labor at after 42 weeks and by 42 and six sevenths weeks of gestation is recommended given evidence of increase in perinatal morbidity and mortality. That's the only thing from this whole thing that it's level A evidence, which is good evidence. 42 and 6, 7. The 42 to 42 and 6. Yeah, so that's almost 43 weeks. Correct. Which almost never happens. Level B evidence is that membrane sweeping is associated with a decreased risk of late-term pregnancies and induction of labor between 41 and 0 and 42 and 0 can be considered. Mm. All right? And then level C evidence, which is not really, which is based on consensus opinion, is initiation of antepartum fetal surveillance at or beyond 41 weeks of gestation may be indicated. Not 39 weeks, not 39 weeks in two days, not 40 weeks in one day. Uh, I know so many women come in, or I've heard through mm-hmm. the grapevine of that the doctor did an NST on them at 39 and a half weeks, and they found, uh, and they did a biophysical bone and found a lo- lowish fluid. Right. What were they doing that in the first place for? All right. There's right. absolutely no indication for that, so unless when, there's an indication for that, unless they have a... So what's the recommendation to start the post-dates testing? Well, again, but this, this, uh, this is level C evidence, but beyond 41 weeks. Beyond 41, yeah. Right. Okay. But again, that's just their opinion. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't know it was their opinion based on, on what, um, what most doctors do. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So I got to keep going here. So... Um, the role of fetal growth restriction and malformation. So this is a really interesting article. They look at 510,000 singleton term, 37 to 41 completed weeks, and post-term, which is at or or after 42 weeks, in the Swedish birth registry. And their conclusion was that the increased risk of stillbirth in post-term pregnancies is partly explained by an increased rate of small for gestational age or IUGR infants. The increased risk of death among small for gestational infants is caused to a large extent by congenital malformations. So, 
what this what I took this to mean was that the if the baby is going beyond 42 weeks but is not growth restricted is not small for gestational age the risks that everybody talks about the morbidity and mortality are far less the the numbers are skewed upward because of small for gestational age infants or IUGR infants so you could take comfort in the fact that if you're ba- if the woman you're following has a baby that's growing normally that there's far less risk than would be otherwise thought by going beyond 42 weeks. Yeah. And most of those are not making that to term anyways. Um, okay. So I'm going to skip the rest of that. A lot of stuff here. Um, for post-term infants, which again, beyond 42 weeks, increased risk of convulsions, meconium aspiration, APGAR scores less than four, were also found among appropriate gestational age in, uh, growth infants too. So, there, you know, again, 42 weeks isn't without its problems. But again, these are 42 accurate weeks too. All right, not 42 badly estimated weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to look at the one that talks about ultrasound here. There's one that, that um, let's see if I can find it. Oh, here we go. When we compared women who un- had undergone a first versus a second trimester ultrasound, those who had a first trimester ultrasound were less frequently diagnosed with a prolonged pregnancy beyond 41 weeks gestation or post-term pregnancy beyond 42. Further, these women were less likely to experience a post-term induction of labor because they didn't get there, which obviously. Furthermore, we demonstrated that due to the decrease in misclassification bias in women with a first trimester ultrasound, the differences in perinatal complications is actually higher in these women when comparing pregnancies before and after 41 weeks of gestation. So what, you know, I know that sounds confusing, but what that means is that when you have accurate dating, when you do go beyond 42 weeks, your complication rate is going to be higher mm-hmm. than if you don't have accurate dating and you go beyond 42 weeks, which makes perfect sense because most babies don't go beyond 42 weeks. About 5% of pregnancies go beyond, 5.5% of pregnancies go beyond 42 weeks. But if you had more accurate dating, it's probably a smaller number. I don't think you know that statistic. I don't think we know that statistic because we interfere so much. We have no idea that's true. how many. I don't know where that number go. comes from, but yeah. that, that's the number that's quoted. You're right. Yeah, we don't know how many babies actually, if we, we left go. them alone, would well, go. Well, you know, they maybe maybe this is from have. population studies in countries which don't interfere. I, I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I could go on and on and on about this stuff. I I just think it's really important that. Um, Here's one where they looked at women's preferences, which you're going to find surprising. All right. At 41 weeks, 74% of all women preferred to be induced. Okay. This is a, this is a study. I'm not sure where the study's from because I forgot to put the reference down when I, <laughs> when I took it off. But, but that's not surprising, though, because of, of societal pressures and things like that. Sure, and not telling them what the downsides are of, of being induced and, you know. Only 38% mm-hmm. of women who had a serial, who did chose not to be induced in a first pregnancy would have chose that again in a second pregnancy. Mm. Um, I think it, I think a lot of it is, is, is being, being beaten down by, by fear and anxiety. Yeah, I mean, I meet a lot of those women that are coming in for their second pregnancies who want to do it differently, so... They may be the small percentage, but they're out there. And the last thing it said here, which is really I found interesting, again, from the Swedish study, 
is uh, indicated that increased risk of stillbirth for women that go beyond 42 weeks um, is higher for primips, but not for multips. The stillbirth rate is higher? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The neonatal death rate was increased for both primips and multips, but the stillbirth rate, which means in utero Mm -hmm. death, is... Doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be an issue for multips as much as it is for primips. So again, this is just to get you. This is all on your radar. You know, you've mm-hmm. got your little little light bulbs going off in your head that, you know, how good are her dates? How much testing am I going to do? Is she a primip? Is she a multip? Uh, history of having it, what's her history? Term. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all these things come into play. So because, but again, from everything I just said, the idea that forty two weeks should be the cutoff is so arbitrary mm-hmm. that it makes podcast number 126 look like the like the most important podcast. <laughs> all right? I mean, we all we honor podcast 50. We honor podcast 100. We honor anything, you know, if somebody hits their 600th goal or their 500th assist or their 1,000th game played, that's important. Why is that more important than the 1,001 game played mm-hmm. or the 987th game played? They're, they're all pretty important. So right. podcast 126 is one of those things that is very, very important. And this one I hope you'll share with uh, uh, as a reference. Again, if you want some of the things that I reference, you can email me at askdrstu at gmail.com. I can give you the links. Um, some of the stuff is on uh, PubMed, and you have to be a member to get it off of that stuff, so I can't pass that stuff on. But this stuff is all out there for people to look at, and the American College Guidelines... Um, are a good place to start because they have over 50 references in the back and you can find uh, what you're looking for there. But ultimately, it boils down to this. Um, with our skills and our knowledge and our experience, there shouldn't, there shouldn't really be any absolutes. Right. We should be able to help our clients make an informed choice. Right. right. I know we're not going to win this battle, at least not now. We're going to continue to... Uh, Fight advocate. I'm not <laughs> going to fight. I'm going to advocate and I'm going to try to do the best I can for for the people listening and for my clients that I get to uh, uh, have the good fortune to care for, as mm-hmm. do you, and to work together with my colleague Bliss. So again, for Bliss Young, this is Dr. Stuart Fishbein, podcast number 126. Um, we'll all have drinks next time at the Bamboo Inn. <laughs> we'll, we'll just take, take a look at the picture. You'll see what I'm talking about. All right. Thanks for joining. See you next time.